Today I'm going to talk about Reconstruction. Uh, the end of the Civil War answers one question, which is the question of whether there will be slavery in the United States, but it left a host of other questions uh, unanswered and open. Now, four million slaves now had their freedom uh, in 1865. Uh, but there were a lot of other questions that were unanswered, a whole series of them. Generally, the Civil War was a, clearly a war for liberty, a war for freedom, as Abraham Lincoln stated so eloquently in the Gettysburg Address. But what kind of freedom would there be for the ex-slaves, who were known as the freedmen, and also for ex-Confederates? The Civil War was a war for equality. Again, Lincoln had stated that as a war aim in 1863 in the Gettysburg Address. All men are created equal, says the Declaration of Independence. But what kind of equality would the freedmen get? Not to mention, what kind of equality would the defeated Southern citizens, Confederate citizens, get? And specifically in the realm of politics, would freedmen be considered United States citizens? Would they be allowed to vote? Would they be allowed to hold office and serve on juries and testify in court? Note that blacks did not have these rights in many northern states at this time, never mind southern states. In the realm of economics, what new rules would govern economic relations between the freedmen and their ex-masters? Obviously, slavery is gone. That's an economic system. Well, what will replace it? How much control of their labor would the freedmen have? Would special provisions have to be made for them, like uh, giving them land uh, in order for them to have an equal chance at life? And if so, who would give them that land, and where would it come from? Or would equality for the newly freed slaves, for the freedmen, consist of merely freedom itself, nothing but freedom, letting them compete in the American econ economy on their own without any special help from the government or anyone else. More questions. In regard to the defeated South, how would these Confederate states be reabsorbed into the Union? It was Lincoln's position that they had never left, that they were in rebellion. But now, of course, as of April 1865, Lincoln is dead. In these southern states, uh, uh, who, at least among the whites, would be allowed to vote and allowed to hold office? Would southern property have to be confiscated and redistributed to the freedmen and for poor whites uh, as a punishment for engaging in the Civil War, as a punishment for rebellion? What role would the federal government play in reconstructing the post-war South? And how much a role would Southerners themselves play in this process? How much of a role would the federal government play in uh, regulating and governing relationships between blacks and whites in the South? Uh, uh, relationships that were bound in the uh, uh, wake of the Civil War to be fractious ones. And generally, would the South be radically reconstructed as a society? Would it be changed fundamentally, punished, so to speak, and rebuilt in the free labor image of the North, the victorious North? Or would the South be allowed to essentially continue the way it was, just without slavery 
and allowed to continue its own peculiar, separate development with major southern institutions intact. Now, the answers to all of these questions would be fought over uh, during the decade after the Civil War by black and white Americans, North and South, uh, with repercussions and with consequences that we Americans live with today. And the ultimate answers to many of these questions would not be finally decided during these 10 years after the Civil War, but only postponed, sometimes postponed for generations. Now, to understand the years uh, after 1865 in America, uh, you have to understand the political cast of characters, the uh, dramatis personae, uh, uh, so to speak. Uh, uh, and here they are. Uh, uh, in 1865, as the Civil War ended, there were six separate actors at play in American society, five broad groups of people and one individual whose conflicting agendas would create America's reconstruction policy over the next decade. And they were, the six of them, first, northern radical Republicans, then northern moderate Republicans, exemplified, I think, by Abraham Lincoln, third, an individual, the new president of the United States as of April 15, 1865, Andrew Johnson, then Southern white Democrats, Southern white Republicans, uh, essentially uh, 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 those who were known as scalawags, who were Southern whites who had become Republicans. Uh, uh, you know, scalawag is a pejorative term. Uh, uh, these are, are, are whites who had become Republicans after the Civil War. Uh, most white Democrats viewed them as, sla as, as, as traitors, scalawags, so to speak. Uh, uh, also, carpetbaggers, what were known as carpetbaggers, who were northern Republicans who came down to the South to live, to make money, to go into politics, the carpetbaggers. So those were the southern white Republicans. And finally, southern black Republicans who were the freedmen, the, the ex-slaves. And I think the way to understand Reconstruction is to ask the same two questions about each of these actors. And the two questions are, first, what did they want? And the second question is, what did they fear? What did they want? What did they fear? And in fact, I believe that one can profitably ask these two questions about most historical actors in American history uh, in all periods, not just this one. And you'll learn a lot. What did they want? What did they fear? So let me ask those questions about these six actors. First, the Northern Radical Republicans, who are the most extreme anti-Southern uh, 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 Republicans. They're exemplified by uh, Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, who we'll be hearing a report about uh, on Friday. Uh, Charles Sumner, we remember him as the senator from Massachusetts who was caned in, uh, in 1856. And other uh, radicals, radical abolitionists, like William Lloyd Garrison, who we've also talked about. Uh, and Wendell Phillips is another name, uh, 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 another radical abolitionist uh, who's, uh, who's in this category. Well, what did they want? Well, the radical Republicans wanted the total reconstruction of Southern society. They wanted the destruction of the old line planter class and all old line Confederates, 
and a redistribution of power from them, the planters, to the freedmen and also to poor whites. They wanted a free labor-oriented South, South uh, uh, oriented towards the free labor philosophy with a broad landholding and business middle class in the image of what they considered to be the North. They wanted a punished South, a chastened South, and a viable Southern Republican Party. So that's what they wanted. Well, what did they fear? What the radical Republicans feared was a reconstitution of the old dominant planter class, a comeback, so to speak, for this planter class that had, in the views of radical Republicans, been so destructive in causing the Civil War. They also feared the denial of black constitutional rights, which radical Republicans strongly favored. Now, in this, there's a question of motive. And there's always a question of motive uh, in history generally. Why do people act the way they do? Well, why did the Republicans or the radical Republicans want black civil rights? Did they want to help blacks or did they want to punish the South and take revenge on the South? Well, uh, I, I, would, I would argue that the motives uh, uh, of the radical Republicans were decidedly mixed. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens was a great idealist. Uh, uh, he believed in black equality. Uh, uh, when he died, he insisted on being uh, buried in a black cemetery because it was, you know, the white cemetery that he would have been buried in was segregated. So he's a racial idealist, but he is also very, very angry and revengeful uh, 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 in terms of the South. Uh, he's angry at the South. And he wants to punish the South. So there's a mixed motive here, most radical Republicans. They're racial idealists, but they also hate the South and want to take revenge. The second group is the moderate Republicans, and Abraham Lincoln is a good example of this. Now, obviously, he is not around during Reconstruction, but it's his general philosophy. These are the kinds of Republicans who said supported the Emancipation Proclamation, but because it would win the war, not because of uh, any tremendous idealism about the slavery question. They opposed slavery, uh, 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 but uh, most moderate Republicans had been willing to guarantee slavery in the South at the beginning of the Civil War uh, at the, as the price of getting the South back into the Union. Abraham Lincoln was one of these people. Now, what did they want? Well, moderate Republicans wanted a, a, a South that was reunited with the North. They wanted a, a productive Southern economy. And they wanted basic rights for blacks, including education, social services, and eventually voting rights. They wanted to encourage Southern Unionists. These are the kinds of people, uh, these moderate Republicans who at the beginning of the Civil War uh, are, are looking for Southern Unionists, loyal Southerners who will oppose secession. You know, when Abraham Lincoln talked about the better angels of our nature in his first inaugural address in March 1861, he was basically saying to Southern Unionists, you know, rally to the Union, uh, be loyal to the Union. Uh, he found that there were very few, uh, at least in South Carolina. Uh, but even after the war, Moderate Republicans are still looking to, they're looking for old Whigs, uh, people uh, in the South who are moderate, who are loyal to the Union. They also want to, some of the moderate Republicans, build up the Republican Party in the South. They want political power. And they also want free labor change in the, uh, in the South, but moderate free labor change, but no destruction or total destruction uh, of Southern society, which is what the radical Republicans want. Now, what did the moderate Republicans fear? 
they feared uh, southern planters uh, uh, being uh, uncooperative with their policies, uh, not changing to accommodate black aspirations, not adjusting to the end of slavery. They also feared, moderate Republicans did, a continued spirit of rebellion in the South. In other words, most moderate Republicans, even aside from the racial issue uh, 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 and the issue of the ends of slavery, uh, what they basically wanted the South to do was to admit that they had lost the war. You know, you lost the war, we won, you lost, deal with it. That's really their, their attitude. So that's what they feared, that there'd be the, the, a continued amount of Southern arrogance, so Southern white arrogance, even in the wake of losing the war. Then there's the new president, Andrew Johnson, who became president in April 1865. Now, Johnson is from eastern Tennessee, and he is from a yeoman background. And, of course, we've talked about you know, the, uh, the yeoman uh, you know, and, and who they were. He is a very, very poor man. He works his way up literally from the very bottom of the social system. Uh, 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 he uh, is apprenticed to a tailor at a very, very young age. He's semi-literate. His wife actually had to teach him to read. Uh, uh, he has no formal education. Uh, he's really a Jacksonian Democrat. He's very, very much you know, uh, a man of the people, a populist, doesn't put on airs. Uh, and by 1861, he had climbed his way up the what they call the greasy pole of, uh, of, of, of politics, uh, starting out as basically a, a town councilman. By 1861, he's a senator from Tennessee. And he is the one senator from the South who refuses to join the Confederacy, who refuses to secede from the South when all, you know, when all the states secede. They, you know, they're senators from Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia in the U.S. Senate. They, they leave. They become uh, senators or uh, representatives in the Confederacy. Andrew Johnson refused to leave and continues to represent Tennessee in the United States Congress uh, as a loyalist throughout the war. He keeps his seat. In 1864, Lincoln picks him as his vice presidential candidate as a symbol of the Union. Here's a Southern Unionist. But he never really was a Republican. He was a Democrat who was running uh, under the Republican banner. And, as it turned out, Andrew Johnson was a white supremacist as well, who hated both the planter class and African Americans. In fact, Andrew Johnson was such a welter of resentments and insecurities and uh, a paranoia that I think not until Richard Nixon in the 1960s and 1970s have we had an American president who was so uh, uh, angry and suspicious uh, uh, of virtually everyone as Andrew Johnson. What did Andrew Johnson want now that he's the president? Well, what he wants is a yeoman republic in the South. You know, a republic where poor whites, like Andrew Johnson, they're in control, not the planter class. But if he couldn't have this, he wanted at least a white republic, even if it includes planters. In other words, he hates the arrogant planter class, but he also hates blacks. Who does he hate more? He hates blacks even more, as we will see. What does Andrew Johnson fear? Well, he fears black equality. He fears, in fact, an alliance between blacks and rich whites at the expense of the yeoman of his class. So Johnson, almost paradoxically during his presidency, starts to ally with the planter class, doing this himself, to prevent this alliance between the planters and the blacks, to sort of preempt it. So that's Johnson. 
Then there are Southern Democrats, Southern white Democrats. This constitutes the vast majority of the Southern white population. A lot of ex-Confederates, ex-Confederate officers and soldiers, as you might imagine. About 80 to 90 percent of the Southern uh, population. These people, of course, were the ones who had fought the Civil War. What did they want? What they wanted was continued white supremacy in the South. Continuation of Southern society as it was. And control of the freedmen, of the black population, in as close to a, a resemblance to slavery as you could have without having slavery. In other words, slavery is dead. But what is slavery? It's a form of labor control. Well, these southern white Democrats wanted to continue to control black labor in the South. Uh, they couldn't have slavery, but they wanted the next best thing, which is a way to control black labor outside of slavery. I call it slavery without slavery. That's what they wanted. Now, what did they fear? Well, obviously they feared black political, economic, and uh, uh, social progress, uh, or even just black independence and autonomy. They also feared radical Republicans uh, in general. They call them black Republicans. Uh, they had a particular fear of Thaddeus Stevens, a particular hatred of Thaddeus Stevens. And those of you who have seen the film Birth of a Nation, and I assume some of you have, who's, who's seen Birth of a Nation, thanks to me at least a number of you have, uh, the, the Stoneman character in uh, a Birth of a Nation, uh, you know, the guy with the bad wig, uh, 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 that's Thaddeus Stevens. Uh, so he's not portrayed in a, in a positive light. White, uh, white Democrats also feared uh, uh, the radical Republicans destroying Southern society uh, 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 and destroying white supremacy. Then there were the white Southern Republicans, the scalawags and carpetbaggers that I talked about a little earlier. Now, many scalawags were these upcountry yeomen. They actually were from the same background as Andrew Johnson, but they reached different conclusions about what they should do in the wake of the Civil War, uh, uh, and uh, they became Republicans. Many of these upcountry yeomen, like Andrew Johnson, had opposed secession. Now, the white Republicans, the Scalawags, were largely looking for uh, political power through the vehicle of the new Republican Party uh, in a new South. They were looking for, maybe we could call it, yeoman power. Now, after all, there was no Republican Party in the South before 1865, so this is a completely new vehicle. And it's very promising, uh, because the Republican Party has tremendous power in the North, and it is a new startup, so to speak, in the South. So a lot of these white Republicans, you know, get on board. Uh, you, can, you can get political power very quickly, because the Republican Party is like an empty vessel. It doesn't have a history in the South. Now, there are also the carpetbaggers, the northern uh, Republicans who come down to the South after the Civil War. Now, history has usually given them a bad reputation. Again, those of you who saw the film Birth of a Nation, the carpetbaggers don't look very good. Uh, you know, they're uh, dishonest and in it for the money and fraudulent and, uh, you know, uh, they stir African Americans up. Uh, uh, every stereotype you can really see in that film Birth of a Nation. Uh, which is really one of the great films in American history. Uh, it's a great film on a very, very. Uh, 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 it's it's a great film with a bad subject and a bad uh, 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 bad perspective. It sort of glorifies the Ku Klux Klan. But I've always felt that there are a couple of films that every American should see. 
Uh, Birth of a Nation is one of them. Uh, uh, if you want to understand uh, uh, race relations in America, you really have to see this film. It's a, it's a racist film, so I, I, I'm, I'm loath to, uh, uh, to recommend it, but I think it's, it's, it's an important film to see. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, they, they, are, they are portrayed, uh, uh, the carpetbaggers are portrayed very badly in this film. But it's not necessarily the case. Uh, carpetbaggers, uh, many of them were idealists. They came to the South because they wanted to help the South. Uh, 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 many of them were honest businessmen or uh, former army officers or college-educated people. Uh, some of them came for money, but others came to build an equal, free labor-oriented society in the South. Now, what did these white Republicans want? Well, they wanted political power through the Republican Party uh, and also economic growth uh, in the South uh, along the lines of free labor, uh, 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 you know, in the, in the image of the North. Now, insofar as black political rights were concerned, uh, uh, they wanted black political rights. Uh, although this commitment, uh, especially among the Scalawags, the white, uh, the white Southerners, uh, was, uh, was rather shaky. What did they fear? Well, they feared being branded as black Republicans. They feared uh, social ostracism, uh, since uh, many Southern whites wouldn't, uh, wouldn't even speak to them. They, they viewed them as traitors since they were Republicans. They feared a resurgence of the white planter class. And perhaps most of all, they feared the loss of support from Northern Republicans. Because without the support of Northern Republicans, these white Republicans would lose their power. Uh, 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 without the support of federal troops that were stationed in the South, these white Republicans would be out of power. And this, in the end, their fears were realized. This is exactly what happened. And finally, the last group, black Southern Republicans, the freedmen. Now, in 1865, there were 4 million freed slaves in the South, including about 2 million potential voters, male voters, obviously, not female voters. And many blacks became active in the new Southern Republican Party, forging alliances sometimes with white Republicans in the South. Blacks made up about 80% of the Southern Republican Party, uh, about 80% of Republican voters in the South. I know it sounds rather anomalous that uh, African Americans would be strong supporters of the Republican Party uh, in the 1860s, but you can see why that would be the case, uh, given uh, what happened during the Civil War. Now, what did they want? Well, black Republicans, uh, African American Republicans, certainly wanted the vote. Uh, which they did not have in 1865. Uh, they got it in many southern states in the late 1860s uh, and nationwide through the 15th Amendment in 1870. They wanted political power. They wanted economic independence. They wanted land, which they did not have, so they could operate small farms. And they also wanted increased social services from an activist government in the South. Uh, 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 and also in the North, uh, both on the federal and local levels. They wanted government to spend money on social services. What did they fear? Well, they feared the resurgence of the Southern planter class. They also feared a resurgence of white terror uh, in the form of the Ku Klux Klan, which we will get to in a few minutes. They feared the loss of political power. They feared the abandonment uh, uh, or their abandonment by Northern Republicans, which again is what happened in the end. And 
They feared the reimposition of the conditions, especially economic conditions, akin to slavery. In other words, black Republicans feared exactly what most southern whites wanted, what I refer to as slavery without slavery. So we can look at the events of the post-war years uh, in the context of the hopes and the fears of this shifting, realigning, and competing cast of historical characters uh, that had certain wants and certain fears. Now, Reconstruction began with Abraham Lincoln's proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction in December 1863. In his proclamation, Lincoln promised amnesty to all Confederates who would take a simple oath of allegiance to the United States, not the Confederacy, uh, accept the, and accept the end of slavery. Uh, uh, all except high-ranking Confederates, you know, like Robert E. Lee, uh, Jefferson Davis, would be subject to this amnesty. Lincoln said that if 10% of the citizens uh, in a state would do this, take this oath and renounce slavery, uh, the state could rejoin the Union. 10% is not very much. And he said that the new state governments, the readmitted state governments, could legislate for the freedmen, quote, as a laboring, landless, and homeless class. In other words, he almost gave these new state legislatures, southern state legislatures, carte blanche uh, to regulate the labor and control the labor of freedmen. In other words, easy terms, generally easy terms, and tellingly no requirement that these states have to allow freedmen to vote. But not surprisingly, the radical Republicans objected to this. This was too easy on the South. Why, they argued, would you allow southern rebels to vote before loyal freedmen? The radical Republicans wanted to take Confederate lands away and give them to African Americans to allow blacks to vote. And radical Republicans passed what was known as the Wade-Davis Bill in 1864, which imposed much more strict uh, requirements on the South, on these southern states, to get back into the Union strict loyalty oaths that one had never supported the Confederacy, which, of course, was, was going to be very, very difficult. Uh, Lincoln vetoed the law. He, uh, he allowed the legislative session of 1864 to run out before signing it, effectively vetoing the law. And at the time of Lincoln's death, it was clear that a struggle, a fight, an argument was brewing between radical Republicans and the more moderate Abraham Lincoln over how the South would be treated after the war. Now, although Lincoln was moving in the direction of giving blacks the right to vote, it's one of the things that he said uh, in the last speech that John Wilkes Booth heard, uh, uh, we'll never really know what Abraham Lincoln would have done during Reconstruction. It's one of the great unanswered questions of American history. But I'm sure that he would have handled it better than the angry, politically inept Andrew Johnson. Now, Johnson wasted very little time after taking office in April 1865 to reveal his pro-Southern and pro-white sympathies. In May 1865, Johnson uh, uh, issued his own Reconstruction Proclamation. It was much easier on the South than even Abraham Lincoln's, which was pretty easy on the South. There would be a blanket amnesty for all Confederates except the very highest ranking ones, or Confederates who had more than $20,000. And that was Johnson, the great poor populist, uh, his way of getting in a dig at the rich uh, planter class. 
But even these rich Southerners or high-ranking Confederates could still get special pardons from Johnson, but they had to come to Johnson and apply to him personally. And one can only imagine the scene as this incredibly resentful man uh, who, had been, uh, uh, who had been insulted and put down throughout his political career by high-born, rich plant, Southern planters. Now is the President of the United States uh, uh, and sits in the White House while they prostrate themselves in front of him, begging for pardons. Uh, this very, very uh, insecure man must have taken a lot of satisfaction from that. Johnson's proclamation also said that southern states could exclude blacks from voting rights. And the southern states themselves seemed to confirm the radical Republicans' worst fears about them. Because in their conventions in 1865 uh, to readmit the southern states, to get the states, southern states back into the Union, they refused to enfranchise blacks. They elected former Confederates to high office. For example, Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, who I referred to before, uh, was, uh, was elected to the Senate from Georgia. You know, most radical Republicans thought he should be in jail. He's in the Senate now. Some southern states even refused to ratify the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, which was at least Abraham Lincoln's absolute bottom line criteria for readmittance into the Union. Further, in 1866, the the, the southern states passed what were known as the Black Codes. Uh, Now, these Black Codes were laws aimed at controlling the labor and controlling the independence of the newly freed slaves, of the freedmen. They contained vagrancy laws that forced blacks to sign work contracts, sometimes with the same plantation owners that had held them as slaves. Uh, You couldn't be a vagrant. You couldn't not have a job. The Black Codes imposed forced apprenticeship rules uh, for black miners, that they would be apprenticed to uh, white tradesmen, another form of slavery without slavery. Under the Black Codes, blacks couldn't rent land, they couldn't testify in court, and they couldn't vote. And worse to the radical Republicans, and now increasingly even the moderate Northern Republicans, Andrew Johnson approved of all of this. He approved of the Black Codes. And now, Republicans of all stripes, the radicals and the moderates, decided to get tough with the South, to teach them to show proper respect. Remember who won the war and who lost the war. Now, helped by their large-scale victories in the congressional elections of 1866, the Republicans now controlled both houses of Congress, the Republicans passed the following laws, all, I might add, over Andrew Johnson's veto. First, the Freedmen Bureau's, Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau is a government agency to help African Americans in the South, to give them schools, uh, monetary aid. Uh, uh, they had their own courts that would adjudicate uh, disputes between le- white landowners and the freedmen. Uh, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, which was set up uh, right at the end of the Civil War, was extended by Congress. It was supposed to run out uh, by the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Uh, Andrew Johnson vetoed it. Congress overrode the veto. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau was a military institution. It was run by the Army, and this really stuck in the craw of most Southerners. Then there was the Civil Rights Act. Now, under the Civil Rights Act, blacks were made federal citizens with rights to be enforced not in state courts, but in federal courts. Again, Johnson vetoes it. 
they override the veto. Then there are the Reconstruction Acts, forcing the southern states to allow black suffrage and allow black equal rights uh, in order to be readmitted to the Union. And finally, there was the 14th Amendment, which was the capstone of the American civil rights apparatus. Uh, This was ratified by the states in 1868, so it became law in in 1868. Now, I've always argued this is the most important amendment in the federal constitution. The 14th Amendment defined a broad class of federal citizenship open to all, including blacks, who were born or naturalized in the United States. These are federal rights, not state rights. States could not abrogate these federal citizenship rights. States could not deprive now federal citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment is very important. States also could not deprive federal citizens of the equal protection of the law, another important provision in the 14th Amendment. Now, in doing all of this, Congress expanded the power of the federal government way beyond any of its prior limits and made federal power, federal authority, the daily presence, not only in the average southern citizen's life, but in the average American citizen's life, not only in the decade following the Civil War, but for all time and up until today. By creating federal rights and a federal apparatus to enforce these rights, Congress, through the 14th Amendment, fundamentally changed the nature of American government and American society, particularly with respect to race relations, making it possible, not in the 1860s, but in the 1960s, to break down the final barriers to legal equality for all blacks in the United States and to go a long way towards breaking down barriers to social and economic equality as well. Whatever progress America has made and may make in the future in these areas is in large part a product of the most important amendment in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment. And yet, with this, there's more irony. Why did the Republican Congress pass these laws? Why did it pass the 14th Amendment? Was it to help blacks? Well, in part it was, but it really may have been to punish the South, to teach the arrogant Southerners a lesson about who won the Civil War, maybe even to teach Andrew Johnson a lesson, and maybe even to make it possible for a Republican Party composed largely of African Americans to grow to power in the South. In other words, strictly a partisan political move. As we've seen before, and here yet again, Great moral acts can be the result of decidedly mixed motives. And this instance may be the most ironic of all, since out of one of humanity's most base emotions, base instincts, the desire to revenge, the desire to punish, came some of the most high-minded legislation in American history, legislation that helped the United States start to live up to its promise of freedom and equality for all Americans. Legislation that was the product of some of the angriest, most bitter politicians our country has ever produced. 
Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner as examples. So the 14th Amendment was yet another example of America doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, something that seems to appear constantly in American history like a cultural trait. Now, the bitterness between Andrew Johnson and the Republican Congress escalated during 1867 until, in early 1868, the House of Representatives took the previously unprecedented step of impeaching him and trying him in May 1868 before the Senate. Now, while the pretext for the impeachment was Andrew Johnson's violation of what was known as the Tenure of Office Act, an, office, uh, an, an act that Congress passed providing that Congress has to approve the removals of certain executive branch officials, including cabinet members. Uh, uh, Andrew Johnson refused uh, uh, to consult Congress uh, uh, when he removed or fired uh, Edwin Stanton, who was the uh, uh, radical Republican Secretary of War. Uh, uh, Johnson argued that the Tenure of Office Act was unconstitutional, and it probably was as an abrogation of executive power. But even aside from this, the impeachment move was really about reconstruction policy. It wasn't really about law. It was about politics. Andrew Johnson survived his impeachment by one vote and kept his job. But his presidency was ruined. And he gave way in March of 1869 to the great hero of the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, who was running as a Republican, elected in 1868 on a platform of let us have peace. And by 1869, uh, many in the North, with the exception of radical Republicans, were ready for peace in the sense that the nation had been in sectional crisis now for 20 years, and many in the North began to feel that federal troops uh, that were occupying the South uh, should be removed and the South should be allowed to rule itself so that the reconciliation between the sections, between North and South, could start. And this feeling grew even stronger with the ratification of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution in 1870, which officially gave blacks the vote in America. States could not, under the 15th Amendment, deny uh, the vote based on race. With the passage of the 15th Amendment, or the ratification of the 15th Amendment, many Northerners felt that blacks had all the tools they needed to protect themselves, and that their obligations to blacks were over. But in the South itself, it was clear that blacks, and Southern Republicans in general, needed a great deal of help if they were going to survive. The legislatures that had been elected under the aforementioned Reconstruction Acts in the South in 1867 and 1868 were dominated by Republicans because many Democratic voters who had been uh, excluded as ex-Confederates or had boycotted what they considered to be uh, black Republican elections, uh, 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 the Republican office holders under these, uh, under these elections, under these new constitutions, uh, many of whom should be noted were white, they held office only by virtue of federal power, federal military power in the South. White Democrats in the late 1860s attempted to destroy the Republican Party in the South, and to do so, they used a number of means. First, they tried to use white supremacy arguments to convince southern white Republicans, to convince the Scalawags, 
to abandon their black allies in the Republican Party. And they had much success in this. They also tried the ostracism of white Republicans, reading them out of the white community, a powerful weapon in the South of the 1860s, again with much success. White employers and landowners also used economic intimidation against their black employees and tenants to inhibit their political participation. But most of all, white Democrats in the South used terror, the most well-known instrument of which was the Ku Klux Klan. Now, the Ku Klux Klan was founded by ex-Confederate military officers in 1866. It was a secret organization devoted to the lost cause of the South and to white supremacy. It sought to intimidate Republicans in the South, and specifically freedmen. It would use violence against freedmen who uh, attempted to vote, who attempted to run for office, who attempted to operate schools, even who attempted to try to get a better uh, deal from their white employers. And between 1866 and 1871, the Klan murdered hundreds, possibly thousands, of blacks and white Republicans in an attempt, in effect, to reverse the result of the Civil War, to accomplish by anonymous terror what they could not accomplish on the battlefield. Now, while it was true that by 1870, Northern sentiment was trending in the direction of more leniency for the South, the Klan's reign of terror against democratic institutions in the South was a challenge no Northern Republican could ignore. It seemed that yet again, the arrogant South had not learned its lesson and had to be slapped down. And Northern Republicans in 1870 and 1871 passed a series of laws designed to do just that. A law making it a federal crime to interfere with civil or voting rights. The Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which allowed the president to send in federal troops to suppress the Klan and to use the federal courts to prosecute it, something that President Grant did with enthusiasm, arresting and trying thousands of KKKers in a swift and decisive campaign that broke the back of the Klan, at least temporarily. And in 1872, Grant won a sweeping re-election victory on that hardline basis over a Democratic opponent, the newspaper editor Horace Greeley, who advocated a softer policy towards the South. Grant carried every northern state, and thanks to the votes of southern Republicans, black and white, ten southern states as well. The election of 1872 showed that northern Republicans were still angry enough at the South to continue to keep troops there, and still suspicious enough of the South's motives to continue to pass legislation to support the Southern Republican Party, and with it, black political power in the South. But that commitment was not an open-ended one. It was dependent to a large extent on Southern provocations, the black codes, the Klan, more than on a long-term commitment and desire to change Southern society or protect black rights there. Already, economic issues, issues relating to labor and to class, 
were beginning to crowd out issues related to race in the minds of many Northern Republicans. And it was now clear without, that without Northern support, the Southern Republican Party, and with it, the cause of black legal, political, and economic equality was dead. Because with the number of Southern white Republicans shrinking every day, and a hostile white Democratic population implacable in its opposition, only federal power could keep that cause afloat. Laws on paper are only words. They must be enforced. And by 1872, the question was, how long would a crisis-weary North be willing to bring federal power and federal troops to bear in order to force, enforce those laws and to enforce the 14th Amendment in the South? We'll find out in our next two classes uh, as we learn the answers to the host of questions about liberty, equality, and black rights in the wake of the Civil War that I posed at the beginning of this lecture.